So the light bulb came on. I talked to my wife and I said, I want to take a chance. There's over $700 million in research budgets, which is more than all the other New Jersey universities combined. The sharks, you know, once you enter the shark tank, it's a mess in there. You know, it's not like how they present it on TV. And that's what gave me the aha moment when I realized that I want to write people's memoirs. I'm Richard Gerhardt. And I'm Elizabeth Gerhardt. Welcome to Passage to Profit, the show that's all about entrepreneurs, small businesses, and the intellectual property that helps them flourish. You just heard from the people that are going to be on the show, so stay tuned and hear the rest of the story. Want to patent your invention? The chance is near. You've given it heart. Now get it in gear. It's Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Tonight on our show, we have Chris Myers, who's the president and CEO of Environmental Laboratories. And in addition to that, we also have Bavita Howe from Rutgers University. And Dr. Juan with a snack that your kids are actually going to like that's healthy for them. You got to hear all about this. And then Richard Squires, do you want to leave your kids a legacy that's not just money? That's something that can be passed down through your family for years. Well, Richard Squires with Life Story has the answer for you. I have lots of legacies that I want to pass. <laughs> lots down. of stories you wouldn't want in <laughs> and, the book. and plenty of stories that they should never hear. I get, I'm totally there. But before we get to that, let's do IP in the news. I was online looking at funny trademarks at bestlifeonline.com. I found this article by Sarah Crow. So, did you know that you can even trademark? the sound of someone's breathing. I did know that, but I didn't know that anybody would do that. Well, Lucasfilms did. They trademarked Darth Vader's infamous breathing through his helmet, and it was created by breathing through a scuba regulator. So, <laughs> Well, that, that's ridiculous. I mean, first of all, I mean, how can anybody trademark breathing? You know, well, and I guess it is distinctive, right? So that's well, one of the requirements of trademark ability. But I'm surprised it's not generic because that sound has been used a lot in a lot of different places. Especially so. this last year. <laughs> could, Everybody on a ventilator. Since they can trademark smells, could they trademark his breath too? God, that's <laughs> <a lot. laughs> no. Well, I guess the moral of the story there is that you can trademark sounds and you can trademark smells if they are distinctive. So a lot well, of the jingles that you hear on TV, for example, Law & Order, dum, 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 that intro is trademarked. But they only trademark it in certain classifications, right? So they probably only trademarked it for like use in movies and stuff, right? Right. You can't trademark it for all categories like human beings and stop them from breathing. Right. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, trademarks are limited to certain classes of goods, so they could only trademark them for films and probably toys is probably where they went with that one. So, so now on to the ex-royals. Yeah, the ex-royals. My favorite subject, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Of course, everybody has an opinion on them. So they're actually in a trademark dispute. I think they're getting off to a little bit of a rocky start when it comes to their branding. <laughs> Uh, their first trademark guy, by the queen. They need a trademark attorney who, who helps with well, when, branding. When the queen of England rejects your mark, you, you're, you're in big trouble. So, so what was that mark again? I forget. What was it? What were they going to do? I think they it were going to do Sussex something. Sussex Royal. Sussex Royal. Yeah. yeah and uh, I guess it wasn't just the queen who complained. A lot of other people did too. So they came up with another name and that was... Arkwell? Arkwell? I don't know if it's Arkwell or Archwell. It has an E in the middle of it. So, And so they announced that they were going to brand their products with this name. 
And then all of these, you know, pirates jumped in and started filing trademark applications before they got a chance to file trademark applications. Right. So somebody in the Philippines in July 2020 filed for jewelry and the, the, the people in the Philippines that are fighting the royals said you're gonna love this because go Ar ahead. Arquil is now a registered trademark in the Philippines and it's not a former British colony English laws don't work here so <laughs> I point my nose in the general direction of the royals ex-royals and so there so so the moral of the story is well, I guess the moral of the story is don't go public with your brand before you have your trademark strategy done. And trademarks are all based on use. So whoever uses the mark first is the one who gets it. And that use actually has to be in commerce. You have to sell something using the mark. And in the case of the Philippines, they do have registrations there for Arcwell. One of them is for deodorant. So I guess that cuts <laughs> Harry and Megan out of the deodorant market. <laughs> but uh, if they yeah. were using Arcwell for deodorant before the Royals decided to announce their brand, then they're first. So it's all based on use and whoever did it first is the one that gets the rights. Right, but it can be in different categories and classifications. So you can get it for cookies and somebody else can get it for tires. Right. On the mm -hmm. other hand, you know, how big is the Philippine market? And if they can't sell deodorant in the Philippines, is that really going to put a dent in their income? I mean, they're just going to town on all this. And they got really mad. Trademarks are a lot more complicated than you think. <laughs> but I personally am extremely excited about the show that we have today. And we get to ask everybody on the show now what they think about IP. Okay, so, so this is Richard's Roundtable. So, uh, you know, based on what you just heard, do you have any thoughts or comments, Chris? Sure. So uh, we've been involved in depth in regards to trademarking uh, with a number of our brands and IP Things like uh, Don't Guess Test, we own that registered trademark. Our Science, Your Peace of Mind, we own that registered trademark. Safe Home and Biotest Kiss, the list goes on and on. And we use a firm in Indianapolis, Barnes and Thornburg, and this is not a plug for them. They're just really good at what they do. And they advise us. So you want to talk to an attorney who's going to give you the right guidance. Do you want to register in the United States only, or do you want to have a, a trademark that's going to go outside of the U.S.? If so, what countries are you considering? And there's a whole consideration. Now, I'm going to come back to you with a question because I've not asked this question to my team yet, and I want an answer from you two. Why do some brands use the TM and stay with the TM? They never go to the R. Why is that? The answer is pretty simple. I mean, TM is sort of an informal notification that you consider the mark proprietary. And so in addition to federal registrations, there's something known as common law trademark rights. And you get rights for any mark that you use, any mark that qualifies as a trademark in the geographical areas that you use it. And so some people want to put others on notice that they do consider it a trademark under common law rights, and they use the TM symbol to warn people, and it serves as a deterrent. And so if you don't want to go through the trouble of registering a federal trademark, or you can't, or you don't want to invest in that particular word, 
using a TM is acts as a warning. And okay. honestly, most people don't know the difference between a TM and an R. So sure. it does have a deterrent. I know the R costs a lot more money. Right. But, but you, you get much stronger rights. I was going to say, you sure. need the R if you have to go to court, right? Right. Can you go to court on just a Oh, TM? absolutely. Yeah. But there's certain types of damages that you can get with R. And if you have common law rights, then you have to prove the common law rights. And so if you have a registration, it's much easier to prove your use of the mark. That's certainly not my bailiff. Work, but it's super interesting. I like sitting back and listening to these kinds of, I'm, a, I'm an information geek, so I like learning about these things. Well, um, we appreciate that. <laughs> Listen, anyone who likes IP is near and dear to my heart. So, so now Pavita gets a turn, right? Yeah, Pavita, tell us a little bit about what you think. My question is, with uh, copyrights and trademarks, uh, I had the experience of creating a name and then having someone come and say, sorry, you can't use that name. So when is it worthwhile to fight for that name? And when is it better to walk away and start over? Because uh, the advice I was given was, in this case, it's probably not worthwhile to fight that fight. Well, that's a great question too. And it's really an economic decision. How much is it going to cost you to rebrand? And how much goodwill with your customers are you going to lose versus the cost of enforcing the mark and the likelihood of success? And if it's just an emotional decision, like like, just really love this word. Well, sometimes you have to have your heart broken. <laughs> so most of the time, I, what you've encountered, right, is it's better just to to really do the, a good trademark search before you brand even. Right. Choosing a name, you should do a search, not only an online search, you should at least check the trademark office. And really, if you're serious about the business, you should have a intellectual property professional do that because there's more to it than just looking for the same name. But at least as a minimum, you should do those two things. And then the mark publishes after it goes through the registration process, third parties can contest the mark if they think it makes sense to do that. But we've had people who've had their marks for seven, eight, nine years. They didn't really do a good job of searching it and out of nowhere somebody comes and accuses them of trademark infringement and they've got a huge investment in goodwill and they run up a lot of big legal bills because they don't want to change their name, but all the customers know them by that name and they don't want to rebrand, but the other company doesn't want them to use the name that's so close. So involving a trademark professional early on can save you a lot of money down the road. It's worth the few thousand dollars you might pay. That was a great point, Pavita. Thank you, and good advice, too. So, Dr. Juan. I got a comment on trademarks. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. So, we have a trademark, for instance, in our brand, Peanut Crunch, and also in our mascot. But recently, I noticed that someone in Canada is using a similar figurine, just like we don't use as a mascot, for a product that is similar to ours. You know, it's a peanut-containing product as well. We are a small company, so we don't have a lot of money to invest into lawyers or anything like that. What would be your recommendation? in terms of uh, addressing this you know could potentially they could potentially be copying me is it even worth spending the money that's an interesting question and it's a challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs when they run across a situation like that one of the first things you want to do is find out if they're using it in the united states and you want to try to find out when they started using it in the united states because again it's priority of use so 
You may think that you have first use and they're copying you, but it may turn out that they came up with the same approach that you did beforehand. And so before you rattle their chain, you want to make sure that you know you have priority. And I have seen this come back in clients' faces where they accuse somebody of trademark infringement and then they find out that the other party's been using the mark for 20 years and they've been using it for two and now the party they're accusing is demanding that they stop using it. And so if they're using it in Canada, it doesn't count in the United States. And Canada, I believe, is first to register country. So I would contact a trademark professional and get some more specific advice based on the facts that you could do and just tell them that you're on a limited budget. And usually they can help you figure out a solution to at least you know, move forward. But the major issue is, do you plan to sell in Canada eventually? And who got there first? If they did, then you may work out some sort of concurrent use agreement. Sometimes that's possible where parties agree just to not go after each other. There's a lot of options. I will say Juan brought up a really good point though. Just because you have your trademark in the US doesn't mean you have it everywhere. So you have to trademark your product in every single country in which you wish to do business. Right. Okay, Richard, you've been waiting so patiently. Well, it's been uh, very interesting listening to this. I, I love to learn new things. Just thinking about Darth Vader's breathing, it's so recognizable. It's, it's amazing. You know, if someone was to just play a, a sound clip for me of, a, of hearing someone breathing through scuba gear, it's very likely I'd say, oh, that sounds like Darth Vader, which probably helps uh, George Lucas's case. Thinking about Prince Harry and that situation, you know, it's interesting to learn that, you know, again, just what you said about having to register in each country. And I happen to have a client who I'm working with right now. I'm writing her memoir and she's from the Philippines. She's from a city called Ozamis. And she was telling me how densely populated it is. And that actually Philippines is one of the more populated countries. That's oh, well, so maybe it is a market worth fighting over. So, Thanks for bringing that perspective. Okay, so Kenya. Yeah, it. so it was interesting to also hear about the Darth Vader breathing thing. And I, it made me curious to know if there's ever been any media personalities, particularly in radio, because, you know, there's a lot of distinctive voices who have ever decided to get their voice patented or protected or what you would, you know, however you would do that, Richard. I don't know. I'm sure there have been trademarks from, you know, like I said, show openings and closings can be trademarked. And so there's quite a few of those. Whether, you know, radio personalities have uh, sort of specific statements trademarked, my guess is there probably are, none come to mind right off the top of my head. I once thought it would be fun to try to get a design patent on William Shatner's smile. And I was going to approach him and say, look at, I'll get a design patent on your smile. And he'd be the first, he'd be the first celebrity with his face patented. And, uh, he, I just, gone uh, and, and he probably would have gone for it. So there's a lot of celebrities who have their names trademarked. So that's very common. But, really great idea, Kenya. I think that opened a whole new market up for Richard. Well, I was going to say all the iHeart radio personalities should go to Gearheart Law they and should. find out. We've worked with DJ Envy on a project. He's a pretty cool guy. And there's lots of things to protect. Right. Anyway, so, I think it's time that we get on to our guest, Chris. Welcome again to the show. Chris Myers. I am so excited. For people that don't know me, I have a doctorate in analytical environmental chemistry. And Chris started an environmental company years ago, right at the dawn, right? So tell us how that happened and how that went and how you have done, like, what did you say, your 7 million sample or? Uh, 6 million. 6 million sample, Six million sample. testing? Yeah. I started out, um, I actually thought I was going to play Major League Baseball I, out of high school. I grew up on a small farm, um, had a lot of, I was athletic, 
I was fortunately good in the books too, but I was male, young guy, and I wanted to go play professional baseball. So went to college, had a good round with it, had a tryout with the White Sox, and I didn't make it. Hmm. So I had to go back to school, and that's where I met my wife. So the good Lord had a different plan for me, and I went back to Indiana University, uh, double major in biology and chemistry. And then I thought, okay, I'm not going to play professional baseball, so I'm going to coach. So I thought, I'll coach this, I'll coach that. They should really let you do your student teaching first. So when I did my student teaching, I thought, I can't do this. I do not have the patience for this. I don't have that (laughs) bandwidth to be able to do this correctly. So a guy that I was in a biochemistry class with said, man, we need an environmental scientist at our power plant. I was with AEP, American Electric Power. And he said, you have background in the environmental sciences. I've heard you talk. He said, we could really use you. So I called him and I said, Frank, is that job still open? He said, yes. And I took the job. So I actually started out working for AEP. My wife, an elementary school teacher, three children, a house mortgage, and just the list goes on and on. So I started consulting on the side, moonlighting. And I found I really enjoyed going and helping people, going to industries, municipalities, and helping them understand about how to test their water and how to fill out permits for the state of Indiana or for the US EPA. And so it got to where I was actually making more money moonlighting than I was working for AEP. So the light bulb came on. I talked to my wife and I said, I want to take a chance. And I will sit here and tell you right now, for you to be an entrepreneur, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this, you have to be willing to roll the dice. If you are adverse to risk, do not become an entrepreneur. You will not sleep. You will not eat. You will feel like you're in trouble all the time. Not to be, be discouraging. Bad, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't mean you have to be a bad gambler. It just means you have to be smart. I'll never forget, I heard this said once. Somebody said, uh, I don't just throw the spit wad against the wall to see if it stick. I take an educated guess. I do my research to think, is there a good chance that spit wad's going to stick on the wall? And that sounds gross, but that was the analogy. So we uh, decided to take a second mortgage on our home and found out that there was a laboratory in Evansville, Indiana. I actually knew the, the gentleman who owned it, went down and made him an offer. Some of the guys that I played uh, on a traveling softball team with, I hired them with pizza and beer. And we took a U-Haul truck and drove to Evansville and brought the laboratory back to Madison and literally uh, incorporated the company in 1982. I continued to work to at AEP until I built up a strong client base, then left there. And I never looked back. And now we have nearly 40 employees and we're one of the largest environmental testing laboratories in the Midwest. That's amazing. I mean, you make it sound like you just kind of fell into it, but you did it at exactly the right time because I was in school in Colorado during those years. That is when these testing labs started to pop up. And the people that got in at that time on the ground floor really were the flagship brands for that. And that's just amazing that you had the foresight to do that too. Well, And I love it. I, I can't tell you enough of that. I mean, I absolutely love what I do. I, I never feel like I go to work one day. So Chris, what kinds of things does an environmental laboratory test and who do they test them for? So starting out, we were doing regulated testing only. Regulated testing means that you're performing the testing for an entity that is required to have the testing done, like uh, the federal government, US EPA, your state government, county government, city government, some agency that has control over your discharge of waste, solid waste or liquid waste, or 
the drinking water that you're dispersing to the end users, that's regulated testing. So we started out with regulated testing only. So that means if a company has waste or is contaminating someplace, they have to submit a report to the government to make correct. sure that they're compliant with government regulations. Or the drinking water too. Like yeah, it's correct. On, you're both correct. Wastewater side, solid waste, yes, they have to send a report in on the drinking water side. They also have to send reports in to make sure that they're providing good water to the end users. Of course, then you could get into talking about Flint, Michigan, right. Wichita Falls, Texas, San Diego, California, Newark, New Jersey, where utilities had one or more employees that did not do their job well, or they the infrastructure just imploded. And again, that's a whole nother conversation that I travel all the United States talking about on the drinking water side. But drinking water is primarily what we do. Uh, 70% of our revenue is drinking water. And so as time passed over the years since 1982, it became very competitive, the industry for regulated testing. So you'll find this uh, <laughs> kind of a neat little story, but we started taking little 150 milliliter bottles and we were taking them around to county health departments and soil and water conservation districts in Indiana. And we had a little system. And so we put these little colored dots on top of the bottles, blue, red, green, purple, yellow. And uh, I think we even had a white dot. But anyway, so we called it the rainbow bottle program because of the different colors to the dots on top. You were of ahead of your time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we took these into these locations so that the general public could come in and take these bottles with the paperwork for free. They could just go and get them, take them home, call our desk Monday through Friday, give a credit card. We'd take their payment. They fill the bottle, fill out the paperwork take it back to the County Health Department or Soil and Water Conservation District. And we have route drivers that pick up samples on the regulated side. Well, we just had our route drivers stop by those health departments and the Soil and Water Conservation Districts and pick up those samples. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how Safe Home branded drinking water test kits for use by the general public came to fruition. We oh, actually wow. established a division called Enviro Test Kits, which mm -hmm. we registered that trademark. And then we had a brand and started these building these little test kits. If you saw the rainbow bottle program versus where we are today, <laughs> uh, you can go to safehometestkits.com. You can go to Amazon. Our brand is everywhere. Menards, uh, Home Depot. You can see safe home water quality test kits. If you look at those kits and then think about a little 150 milliliter bottle with dots on top of it, that was the evolution. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So we've gone from the uh, County health departments into retail and uh, now Amazon is amazing for us. We sell, I can't tell you, but a lot. We sell a lot of kits on Amazon. Well, a lot so, of people are concerned about their water. Right, so do people still need to send the kits in or can they analyze, yeah. get a, a result right there? We have two platforms of testing. Do it yourself, we call it you test it. So we have these do it yourself test kits that the consumer can buy. It'll ship to their home and they can test it at home and get the results there. Some of the tests are a matter of seconds. Other kits are a matter of minutes, but you can get the results at home. Do-it-yourself testing is awesome for screening your drinking water to get approximate values of the parameters that you're testing. But if you really want to know the exact values, we have other kits that are called We Test It or In-Lab Test Kits. And they can buy those online. Uh, they buy them out of the stores. They fill the vials and we have free return shipping to our laboratory. They just drop it in their mailbox. The vials come back to our lab. We extract the vials and we can test. We have a kit, you're not gonna believe this. The ultimate test kit, it tests for 200 parameters. You can again, go onto Amazon, wow. uh, Home Depot, our website. The ultimate test kit tests for 200 different parameters. That's bacteria, 
physical properties, inorganic contaminants, over 30 different metals, and over 150 different organic parameters that are carcinogens. The ultimate test kit, it was named uh, the best overall water test kit in the U.S. last year by the Spruce, and again this year by the Spruce and Good Housekeeping, safehometestkits.com. To find all of our kits, and again, we have 20 new kits coming out between now and Christmas, and we'll have more broad spectrum, including solids. We're going to offer kits where people can ship solids back to us uh, to analyze as well. That was Chris Myers and you're listening to Passage to Profit. We'll be right back after this commercial break. What are entrepreneurs most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearheart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearheartLaw.com At Gearheart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without Calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. Together, we can change the world. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. We have an equally compelling guest coming up next, our very own Pavita Howe, who we've just known forever and ever. And uh, she's been a super important part of the New Jersey ecosystem, entrepreneurial ecosystem. And right now, she is the Director of Entrepreneurship Partnerships at Rutgers University, where she manages external entrepreneurs and their relationship with Rutgers. Welcome to the show, Pavita. Thanks so much, Richard and Elizabeth. It's great to see you, and thank you for having me on the show. So tell us a little bit about what you do right now for Rutgers and uh, how you help entrepreneurs. So I'm involved in entrepreneurship partnerships, and we've created a new initiative in the Corporate Engagement Center at Rutgers that was created to help bring visibility to Rutgers entrepreneurs make connections into the university community and help Rutgers entrepreneurs to build and grow their businesses. As you all know, Rutgers is a really big place. You might not know that there are pockets of entrepreneurship happening across the community. There are over 500,000 living alumni for the university and many of those are entrepreneurial. And there's over $700 million in research budgets, which is more than all the other New Jersey universities combined. So there's a lot of innovation happening from faculty, students, and alumni. And so this initiative was created to try and bring those together. A lot of other universities have entrepreneurship centers, and they are promoting a lot of the innovation and entrepreneurship that's happening. Because Rutgers is very large and also very old, those activities exist all over. And so this was an effort to try and pull some of that together. It can be challenging for external people to navigate. So we created a place for people to go if they want to connect with entrepreneurial activity at Rutgers and find those opportunities and resources and connections that might be able to help them or to help the grow the Rutgers entrepreneurial community. You know, I do follow you on social media and a while back, I remember seeing you in India 
with some New Jersey luminaries. What was that all about? That was about a year and a half ago. Governor Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, uh, had a, a delegation that went to India for business partnerships. So they were interacting with schools or colleges companies and organizations to help build partnerships and really to attract businesses to come to New Jersey and, and have locations here. So a number of the New Jersey universities participated in that trip, as did some other very interesting uh, and well-known people. And so, yeah, it was very exciting. I was selected to go as the Rutgers representative, you know, mostly because someone else probably couldn't go. (laughs) 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 Um, But it was an amazing trip. It was one week, eight cities in seven days. I lost track of how many flights we took from city to city. We had long days with back-to-back meetings, and sometimes we'd be traveling like two hours on a bus to get to a half hour meeting and then get back on the bus and go again. Oh, business um, travel. Oh. It was, yeah, it was, <laughs> and it's such a different culture and environment. And even though I have ties there, um, it was still just a completely different experience. So there was a lot of culture, but also, uh, you know, visits to some of the big universities there, um, interactions happening with, you know, Princeton, NJIT, Rowan, Rutgers, we were all, we all had representatives there. And we all bonded too, as because it was an experience that we probably never have otherwise. That's great. And, you know, one of the things that we hear being located in New Jersey, sometimes about the ecosystem is fragmented, but I think things like this can help bring the institutions together. So that sounds very positive. Why India? Well, they've actually had trips to other places. I know there's been a big initiative with Israel as well, but I think they look at what is similar or what makes sense for the culture in New Jersey. And in India, actually, the governor had a strong message about the economy, the culture, the community, the proximity to places like New York and Philadelphia and being in the Northeast Corridor. I think by the end of the trip, we could have all repeated his speech because we heard it many <laughs> times. Um, but it was it was true. And, it, and, and one of the things they talked about was comfort because uh, there, there is a large uh, Indian culture in New Jersey as well and a very dense population. And so you're close to many, many companies and and people too that make a community that is more comfortable for people, I think. Well, that's very well said. So you brought a guest with you. I'm excited to introduce Dr. Juan, who is the founder of Perfect Life Nutrition. The products that they offer are Peanut, which are healthy plant-based snacks for all. What I should say is that He is also a very proud Rutgers alum. He has a great story and very much like what we hear often at Rutgers, people who work hard and have become entrepreneurs and become very successful. And he had some very exciting things happen. I did want to know because we were having a conversation at Rutgers the other day and someone said, yes. And one thing we always remember about Dr. Juan is that he participated in a business plan competition on campus which I think was one of the first big moments for him um, related to Rutgers. And he's had many good things happen after that. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Juan. Welcome. I'm so glad you were able to join us as well on the show. And we'd love to hear more about your story. As uh, Pavita mentioned, I'm a proud Rutgers alumni. Uh, I think I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I have three degrees 
uh, and I'm working on my fourth degree already from Rutgers University. And uh, I owe Rutgers uh, basically every success that I've had so far. I'd like to introduce my company. Kavita mentioned the name of the company is Perfect Life Nutrition. The product that we make is uh, branded Peanut Crunch. It's a baked peanut puff. And it's the first peanut puff that is actually made from navy beans, brown rice, and peanuts. As opposed to most snacks that are made from corn, our products are based with navy beans, which are way more nutritious. And what's cool about this combination, which is a proprietary blend that I came up with, is that it actually combines the different proteins from these plants, and it makes it a complete plant-based protein, which is very unlikely to find on not just snacks, but in food uh, that is made from plants uh, anywhere. And what it does is it actually has the effect that it's supposed to have on muscle building, muscle recovery. So it's actually really good for people who are active. I think, Chris, you probably appreciate this since you're a professional baseball player. I did a lot of work with athletes in some of my past companies. Uh, I used to work for Power Bar. So I learned a lot about the nutrition needs of athletes. Um, but one of the problems in developing products for these companies was that it was always geared towards the athlete. So the nutritional requirements of an athlete are very different from the regular person that is active. You know, maybe a, a mom that plays with the kids or any of us that goes to the gym on the weekends and things like that. Yet they're being marketed you know, to the mainstream. And it always bothered me that, you know, people were having these really high sugary bars thinking that they're good for them because they see an athlete eat it. Well, it might be good for the athlete because their requirements are so much higher than us for energy. Or they're making money promoting the bar. <laughs> right. <laughs> that that could be possible. <laughs> right. But for us, it's just sugar that is going to turn into fat. So this is why I came up with this, this product. Um, it's really geared towards the mainstream consumer but it provides a benefit that is beyond just being a healthy snack. It's actually a nutritious snack. It provides really good, healthy carbohydrates, fiber, and protein, all from plants. I went on your website, Juan, and they look really good. And they only have 130 calories per pack. So it's, it looks like it could be a decent diet food, too, if you can use it as a protein. So I definitely am going to order some of these. But yeah. you were on Shark Tank. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was in Shark Tank in October last year. That's when the show aired. We had actually applied to Shark Tank about two years prior. Um, it wasn't until, you know, last year that we got a call from the producer asking if we're interested in participating in the Shark Tank. And I was like, of course, you know, oh yeah. <laughs> they thought that the product was very interesting and very unique. Apparently we were selected, you know, among thousands of other food products that were submitted. Mm -hmm. One of the cool things and stories that uh, you don't see on the, on the show itself, if you, ever, if you see it, is that uh, the sharks, you know, once you enter the shark tank, it's a mess in there. You know, it's not like how they present it on, on TV. Uh, everybody's talking and everybody really wants to figure it out whether the company that they're talking to is a good investment. And Mark Cuban, you know, is, is one of those guys that just kind of sits back. I don't know if you noticed that in the show, but he sits back and he just observes and he kind of takes a lot of information from what everybody else is asking. But there's something going on in his head and I feel like he knew what he wanted. Actually, his wife had actually tried my product before and he had tried it and he loved it. So after, uh, you know, 20 minutes of all the other sharks kind of discussing and asking me questions, he just came out and said, hey, I tried your product before. We love it. I would like to make you an offer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, it's been a fantastic segment. Unfortunately, we have to take a break and we'll be right back with more Passage to Profit 
right after this. So find these products at pnuff.com and do go find them and try them. Right. Amazon as well. We'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Lisa Askley's the Inventress, founder, CEO, and president of Inventing A to Z. I've been inventing products for over 38 years, hundreds of products later and dozens of patents. I help people develop products and put them on the market from concept to fruition. I bring them to some of the top shopping networks in the world, QVC, HSN, Evine Live, and retail stores. Have you ever said to yourself, someone should invent that thing? Well, I say, why not make it you? If you want to know how to develop a product from concept to fruition the right way, contact me, Lisa Askeles, the inventress. Go to inventingatoz.com, inventingatoz.com. Email me, lisa at inventingatoz.com. Treat yourself to a day chock full of networking, education, music, shopping, and fun. Go to my website, inventingatoz.com. Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. If you missed our show so far. You've missed a lot. Yes. You but should. you can get it back. Just go to our podcast, which will be out tomorrow. And we're also available on Pandora and iTunes and all the major podcast platforms. And, but if you want to see everybody's beautiful faces, but I tell you, we get the best looking people on the show. I really, <laughs> is that do. a backhanded self-compliment? No, I'm not counting us. <laughs> I'm talking about our guests. Well, you are beautiful. I mean, um, so you'll see us on YouTube and some of the visuals that people gave us cut into our YouTube presentation too. So go to our YouTube channel, Passage to Profit Show. And you can see the show there. Sounds great. Without further ado, I have spoken to this person before, Richard Squires. He has life story. And I was like, you have to come on the radio show. Everybody has to know about this because this is so cool. So without further ado, welcome, Richard. Thanks so much. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Richard. So my company is Life Story. I'm the founder of Life Story. I'm a writer and a storyteller. And at Life Story, I write your memoir for you or for your loved one. I'm showing a picture right now of one of, the, of a recent book that I wrote. And uh, if you want to see the image, check out the YouTube video. You know, many people have had the idea that they would love to tell their story and create a legacy that their family will have for always, but they find it difficult putting pen to paper. So that's where I come in. And how it all began for me is a story in itself. I had a light bulb moment because I grew up with a very close-knit family and my grandfather was always sharing stories. He was in World War II. All my family members shared stories, but there was this one story that my grandfather told that really captured my attention. And that's what gave me the aha moment when I realized that I want to write people's memoirs. I knew that this was my path and that writing people's memoirs would fulfill their dreams and fulfill mine. So the, the best way to describe life story is to walk you through a day in my life. On a day-to-day -day basis, I typically meet with my clients. During COVID, it's been mostly virtual. Uh, the first interview is where I guide my clients with questions to help prompt them to recall times in their life. It's funny because a lot of my clients say that they've dreamed of writing their memoir and they've even started writing their own memoir, uh, but they learn it's a difficult task. So for people who have started their own writing, I weave that into their books. And interviews can also include family members and friends who have stories to tell. Listening to them share their stories, it's like reading a good book or watching a great movie. I cannot wait to see how it continues to reveal itself. It can be emotional for my client. It gets emotional for me. I get a sense of who they are, how, they, how I can best portray their voice in their memoir and create a journey for their loved ones to read and cherish. Quick funny anecdote, both involving Frank Sinatra, is that I wrote two memoirs of guys who knew Frank Sinatra. One was about a baker, um, Al, who baked Sinatra's favorite cheesecakes. 
And another <laughs> client of mine, uh, his name was Lionel. He was a, a business mogul who knew many different people and he was friendly with Frank Sinatra. Both of these guys come from different walks of life, but their experiences were so interesting. It was an honor to write their memoirs. Writing a book is a lengthy process. I transcribe the interviews. I edit all the writing. I incorporate meaningful pictures. I also incorporate other types of services, such as the genealogy report, documents, birth and marriage certificates of when my clients came over from the old country or their families came over. And the research is incorporated into their narrative and it, it adds another dimension. And when they and their families see that it's been incorporated into their narrative, they're speechless. Um, the cherry on top is the cover photograph. They say you can't judge a book by its cover, but our covers really do represent the essence of my client's memoir. And then the finale is the book reveal. On book reveal day, I present my client's memoir and I video it with uh, my client and maybe their family members receiving the book. And if you go on my website, you can see how emotional the book reveal is. It gives me chills every time. So if you've been dreaming about writing your own memoir, or if you know someone, whether family, friend, business, a story that really should be captured, reach out to me. I love what I do. I make my clients feel very comfortable and at ease as they walk me through their journey. Wow. What human doesn't want their story told, right? Who doesn't want to be heard? I think it's just really such a fantastic thing that well, you're doing. And I regret that my family hadn't done this because I did not know until about five years ago that the way that my great, great something grandfather got the money to buy a bunch of farmland in Oregon was that he struck gold in California. I didn't know that until, you know, I was really old and the stories get lost and so easily. And it really is something that you can pass down to your family that they'll cherish forever. I, I want Richard to do one, my Richard. <laughs> Just leave out all the bad stuff. But okay? how long does it take? How many hours do you sit with the person? So every project is unique and custom, and it really depends on the person's story, how comprehensive they want to be. Some people want to tell the, you know, the whole story from, from as far back as they can remember, or even far back, you know, further back than that, such as everything that they know about their ancestry, which uh, again, can include the genealogy report um, or stories that their grandparents or great-grandparents told them about their generations going back, kind of like what you're talking about. But some are, are thematic. I have uh, one book that I did on a couple who spent 15 years in the Foreign Service, and that's all they wanted to talk about was the Foreign Service. Very interesting. They, they lived in five different locations. Uh, there's, I was mentioning my client, Al. He was a, a career baker, and he wanted to talk about his career as a baker, but we were able to weave some other things in there because during his career, he met his wife and, and started a family. So the minimum is usually about four hours you know four hours will get you kind of the minimum really nice beautiful book but it goes up from there uh the average i would say is eight hours seven eight hours of interview but i've wow. i've done 12 hours and i have a client i'm doing right now we did 24 hours i interviewed him one hour every two weeks i can just Great. see it right now our lives on passage to profit <laughs> What do you think? <laughs> you have a very interesting story too, by the way. If you, if you, if I get one, you get one. So, Chris, do you have a question for Richard? Yeah. So, Richard, who's the most interesting book that you put together this far? You know, I think everyone is interesting. Some stories are more interesting to a wider audience than other people. I would say the most interesting book is this one. This is a, a Holocaust anthology that I did. So it was 11 people who I interviewed, 11 Holocaust survivors. I partnered with a living facility up in Bergen County, New Jersey, that has a lot of Holocaust survivors that came through. And it's just amazing how all their stories are incredible and super important. And every single Holocaust survivor story is unique. Um, I did a filmmaker who directed 
Ronald Reagan's political movie. It was like a 15 minute movie. And the movie became known as the greatest political film made at that time. It was, it was when Ronald Reagan was running uh, for his reelection. Very, very interesting. So do you ever get somebody who maybe shouldn't be telling their story? <laughs> <laughs> thinking of me <laughs> <laughs> no i'm just actually i'm thinking of somebody who shall not be named no 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 i actually we hope to have him on the show so uh, but anyway <laughs> in, in my opinion no i think everyone's story is interesting i mean you know some people have a story that would not necessarily make a blockbuster book blockbuster film or best-selling book you know it's not uh, something that would interest a wide audience but it's interesting to their family and just even a simple story the idea of falling in love and getting married or and having kids, you know, something we can all relate to, but each way that it happens to us is unique. But then you have other stories where, you know, maybe they're filled with wild times, right? Stories they don't want their family to read, you know, and sometimes people are like, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't say that. Uh, you know, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think? Do, should we share it? And for me as a storyteller, and, and I you know, have two master's degrees in, in writing with a concentration in fiction, and I used to work in film, and I'm all about story and really good stories are full of drama so the more questionable material in it the more interesting reading it can make and so my vote is always to you know go with it go there go with it. and they say you know make a scene so in terms of like have you ever helped anybody get their story published like i know it goes to the family but do some people go on and actually publish their work or the work that you do okay so two things um you know for the most part the the classic life story that i do it's it's meant you know as a legacy for the family so it's it's self-published and it's print on demand and you print as many copies as you want and you can print more later on give it out to however many people you want uh each book comes with a unique isbn number and it can be put on Amazon. And I had one client, I helped her put it on Amazon. And then it's up to her to market it through her own network, through social media and uh, whatever. And it's, it's sold on Amazon. So any of these books can be put there on Amazon. But that being said, I do have a number of clients I'm working with whose books have commercial potential. And I love the idea that some books can be resources to other folks who may be starting a journey that the author who I'm working with has been down that journey and can provide as a resource. So those kinds of books have commercial potential. I'm also talking with a, an ex-NFL player. Hopefully I'm going to do his book for him. So that's always exciting. And for some of these nonfiction books, what you want to do traditionally in, in nonfiction publishing is write a proposal. A proposal includes two or three chapters plus other aspects like a uh, table of contents, synopses of each chapter, plus some market research about the competition, book concept, th things like that. I have got so many pictures of the cat with Richard that would be just great in his memoir. They're so <laughs> embarrassing. All right, now it really is time for a commercial break. Okay. So thank so, you very much. You're listening so, to Patrick Profit. Thank you. Profit, the Inventor Show we'll, on WOR 710. And we'll be back with more stories after this. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunity are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearheart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearheart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer 
your product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit gearheartlaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now more with Richard and Elizabeth. Passage to Profit. And coming up next, we have Kenya Gibson with her Power Move segment. Yes, so access to insurance is crucial to the success of any business. And Russell Westbrook, who is an NBA legend, he's a point guard for the Washington Wizards, has partnered recently with Accresure, which is an insurance tech company. So they have global insurance that they provide around the world. And his role is focused on providing access to insurance for products for minority-owned businesses. So he saw there was a need and there was a gap in the market. So he decided to partner with Accresure along with Russell Wilson and Sierra. And so they are using their influence and their their celebrity to partner and provide resources to minority-owned businesses to make sure that they have access and opportunities. I think this is fabulous. These are huge blocks to success for so many people. And I don't think people realize how difficult it is for people that aren't in advantage situations to get things the rest of us may take for granted, right? And insurance is an important piece of that. People won't invest in you or make substantial investments in your company if you're not insured. So it's an important piece of the business puzzle. So what's going on with Fireside? So for those of you who don't know, I started Fireside about a year ago. It is an online video directory of small businesses. And I want it to be the Wikipedia of small business by video. It's a YouTube channel and a website. And I have been gathering content this past year. So I do interviews of small business owners, uh, Richard Squires. And I did an interview together. That's how come I knew so much about him and want him on the show so bad. And I'm doing that to gather content. Obviously, that's not going to get me where I need to go if I want to be as big as Wikipedia. So I'm looking for partnerships with other people that have videos to put them on the site. I have to tell you, the interviews I'm doing are so much fun. I did one yesterday. At the end of it, the guy was like, this is the most fun interview I've ever done with anybody. And I was like, yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun too, because it's fireside, like fireside chat. So anyway, I'm keeping going. I'm still in phase one, which is content creation, but hopefully phase two, which is marketing, will start pretty soon. And that's it for our official presentations tonight on Passage to Profit. But before we leave, we'd like to ask our guests for a few final parting comments. So Chris, what's your take and what's your advice to the audience? Being part of this uh, Passage to Profit was fantastic. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, to all of you who are considering being entrepreneurs and pursuing. As I said before, be prepared to roll the dice, ride the waves high, ride the waves low, stay strong, be smart, and surround yourself with good people. Excellent. Perfect advice. Pavita? I'd like to say thank you also for having me on the show. I've learned so much. It was great to be here and to have Dr. Wan with us. Advice to entrepreneurs, do what you love and you'll enjoy working every day. Entrepreneurship is a journey and it can be so much fun. And finally, Kenya. Yeah, I will uh, second those comments. I just love the creativity that was brought forth today on the show and just keep creating and uh, keep dreaming big because there's some great things happening out there in the world. Well said. So let's run through the websites of everybody that was on the show. I can get a hold of them. All right. Of course, you can go to YouTube and see this on our YouTube channel. But 
Our guest was Chris Myers, who 40 years ago decided to allow people to test for contaminants in their drinking water and has built it into this huge business. And as an entrepreneur, he tested the waters. <laughs> and they came back poisoned. <laughs> so, Keeps us in business. <laughs> yeah, you can find his home test kits at safehometestkits.com. And he analyzes a wide variety of things. Some things at home, some you have to send to the lab, but... Uh, definitely worth looking at his website and to keep your body healthy and stay safe. And if you miss the podcast, listen to it because the stories he tells will curl your hair. And then we had Pavita Howe, who is at Rutgers, and she is the director of the entrepreneurship partnerships at Rutgers. You can find her at go.rutgers.edu slash Rutgerspreneurs or on social media at Rutgers. And she's a great contact if you're a Rutgers alum or if you're thinking about going to Rutgers or if you work in Rutgers and want to outreach, she's the person to talk with. And then we had a tasty guest, (laughs) (laughs) Pina, Dr. Juan Salinas with wonderful healthy snacks for everybody and great after workout, get your full protein profile, PNUF, P-N-U-F-F.com. There's more and more plant protein out there. And I'm just wondering what's going to happen to meat after a while. I guess we'll find out. I guess we'll find out. And we had Richard Squires with Life Story, www.lifestorymemoir.com. You know what? Do your descendants a favor and get your life story published with Richard. It's really important. I remember our daughter asking us as a Christmas present, could each of us write up our life story? And I started started that. And after about 15 minutes, I was like, Holy cow, where do I go with this? What do I put in? What do I leave out? <laughs> but she was so sweet, she wanted that instead of a Christmas present. So, and then we had Kenya Gibson, Kenya Gibson with a P at iHeartMedia.com, who talked about Power Move and one of my favorite athletes, Russell Wilson. iHeartMedia has radio stations everywhere yep, and is do. on the internet and also has digital marketing. And we use their digital marketing and it's great. So if you're looking for digital marketing, contact Kenya Gibson at iHeart. They do a great job. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Noah Fleischman, our producer, Alicia Morrissey, our program coordinator, Angela Wolf, our video producer. And also don't forget to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, not to mention subscribe to our YouTube channel. So this is Richard and Elizabeth Gerhardt signing off for Passage to Profit on iHeartRadio, WOR 710, the voice of New York.